This is Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock here with Ed Smith. If you've got questions about your workplace rights, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, now would be the time to give us a call, 202-588-0893. Mike, the engineer, will get you on the air. We want to hear from you. Ed. Howdy, howdy. Hey, you hey. Might, you might not have the right to vote down in Florida. Aye, anyway. aye, 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 aye. Uh, call over uh, at 202-588-0893, as Chris just mentioned. We'd love to talk to you today. By the way, uh, Your Rights at Work is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Over 150 labor radio and podcast shows, just like ours. Maybe not just like ours. Just like maybe ours. Not as, maybe not as good <laughs> as ours, but there are over 150, and you can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. Nice and simple. Nice and simple, just like us, Edsbury, just like us. All right, on today's show, Chris Biondi, Training Director at the Washington, D.C. Joint Plumbing Apprenticeship Committee. He's going to talk about the Industry Day and Open House at Plumbers Local 5's Apprenticeship School. It's going to be hosting next week. And then there are real questions, real questions, I say, about the future of the office in the wake of the pandemic. I know I was just down for my weekly visit this morning. We're going to take a look at the fascinating history of, yes, office design with Jennifer Kaufman Bueller. She's got a book out, Open Plan, A Design History of the American Office. But first, as always, this week's labor news headlines. And uh, I'm going to have to try and breeze through these, Ed, because we have got uh, a load of them. Uh, first of all, uh, longtime listeners would know that Ed and I both hail from upstate New York. And uh, Ed, I don't know if you saw this, six more, count them, six Starbucks coffee shops in upstate New York voted to unionize last week, Thursday and Friday. Uh, two stores in my hometown of Rochester, another one in Buffalo, and three more. Do you want to guess where the other three were? Um, Syracuse, Poughkeepsie, and New Paltz. Syracuse was close. They were down in Ithaca, which actually, if you think about it, it's not a big surprise, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Good school there. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, file this under wah, 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 Amazon. Uh, which, as uh, reported here, lost, uh, lost, I say, uh, an election to the uh, Amazon Labor Union uh, a couple of weeks back. Uh, Ed, you're going to love this, brother. They're calling for a, a revote. You don't have uh, the boss calling for a revote that often, do you? Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> but you're going to love. You're going to love why why they're why they're calling bad union workers do to the management. I know, I know. Uh, they claim I, I I I can't even do this with a straight face. That they claim that the unions suppressed turnout, they intimidated workers, and they distributed marijuana to win votes. Now they 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 did give away free doobies. That that is actually true. Not <laughs> <laughs> I, I I hope these charges get left right out of uh, the labor board. Uh, you got it. 
vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I think maybe management might have been might have got a hold of a few of those doobies. Is my is my theory. <laughs> Um, listen, another one on, I got a couple here on Amazon. Um, now they've spent millions on anti-union efforts at, uh, you may have seen these, uh, uh, $4.3 million that Amazon spent just, uh, last year, uh, employers. And this was amazing. Maybe you knew this $340 million a year that bosses spend on consultants. Uh, clearly you're on the wrong side of that aisle, my brother. Yeah, I, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, the number, I did not know the number, but, uh, you know, every employer at some point in time pays five, $600 an hour to people to uh, suppress a union vote or to fight a union or to fight, even if the union's there, fight a campaign. The well, apparently, Ed, all they got to do is give out some doobies. I mean, it's got to cost less than $340 million a year. <laughs> right. Maybe we should have a free doobie. Uh, <laughs> By the way, uh, the, the, the range, and I don't, I don't mean to get you green with envy here, but the, uh, the consultants get anywhere from 350 to 2,500 smackaroonies a day. I mean, I, 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 gotta, I, I, I don't know what you would do to get $2,500 a day. And I'm thinking that's, that's like an eight-hour day, right? Walk around in your suits and talk to employees and badmouth the union. That's what you, that's what you do to get $2,500 a day. I'm surprised. I think that's, I thought that was a little low, actually. $2,500 a day. Mm-hmm. Aye, I, thought it'd I thought it'd be up, upwards around $3,500, 4000 But Hey, Ed, in case this whole gig at DC Nurses Association isn't working out for you, I saw that Starbucks is advertising for an in-house lawyer with experience in strike contingency planning. Now, mm-hmm. now you've got that in spades, maybe, maybe in the wrong side of the aisle, but I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, um, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just looking out for you. Yeah, that ship has sailed. Well, you could come with me, but uh, I don't think <laughs> I think we'd probably last about 15 seconds in that job, maybe. Oh, if that, if that, we wouldn't even get in the door. Hey, uh, Mike, have you got that little audio queued up from Monday? All right, let's uh, speaking of strike contingency, this is a little audio postcard I put together from uh, a little something that Ed was working on on Monday. Let's roll that, Mike. The hospitals should be supporting us the same way we've supported them through this pandemic. There are many students at Howard who support you guys and your struggle. You all came to work every single day and took care of the public. That's how you treat heroes, Howard? No! I would say shame on you, Howard. This is not the end. It's the beginning of a campaign to win a contract, and we're with you 100%. I was in labor for three days. I saw a lot of nurses. (laughs) Almost only nurses, in fact. Who's got the power? We do! Who's got the power? We do! You all know that you're not alone, because we know how important our nurses are to us. I love my patients. I love the work that I, I do. Justice is justice and right is right. And wrong is always wrong. Little audio postcard from the DC nurses uh, strike on Monday at Howard University Hospital. Ed, you got about a 30 second update on, on things there? Um, no update from management. By the way, one of those nurses was Jane Anyu, who was great yes. on the picket line, dancing and keeping everybody active. Love her. Love Jane. She did a great job. Uh, no, no updates, but uh, I will say this. We uh, really appreciated the support. We've garnered a lot more support than uh, we thought we would be able to garner. And we're continuing to uh, battle and, and, and 
develop even more support in the community as well as our, our own members. We had a fantastic, fantastic turnout from our members. Uh, there was very few that crossed the uh, picket line. Uh, so we are working on next steps to agitate and uh, be active. Uh, we, you know, the end goal is to get management back to the table and negotiate a fair contract. And I really appreciated hearing Reverend Hagler, your boss, Deanna Forrester. I think I heard Jaime Contreras in there, a kid named Aaron Boo. Um, and I know I would be, I'm, I'm remiss because I know I'm missing a few names, but uh, that nice little audio thing, Chris. And our union is going to be putting out a union produced video in the next day or two uh, to share with people. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it was a real honor to, uh, to be able to walk out there with your, with your nurses and all those community supporters. So really appreciate that. All right. Just a couple of more uh, quick headlines before we get to our, our first guest. Uh, this is from the guardian. Uh, this harkens back to the union busting I was just referring to. Uh, and and uh, interestingly, so there's a, there's a wave of recent union victories, which we've covered here on your rights to work suggests Ed Smith, that union busting consultants may have lost their Sway. They may have lost their sway. Here's the here's the key. Uh, in Staten Island, the Amazon labor union turned the tables on the company's anti-union consultants and showed that they may have been quote more of a liability than an asset. Now, Ed, if you're paying somebody twenty five hundred bucks an hour or a day, I'm sorry, a day uh, to to bust a union and they don't deliver, somebody's got some answer to do. I'm thinking. Um, you know. You would think so, right? But I think the employers have this arrogance that we know best. Um, you're going to listen to us eventually, and they keep testing the waters. And I think what ends up happening is people get really frustrated, and managers think that uh, the employees are going to listen to them and trust them more than the union, and, and that is changing, I believe. Hey, better late than never. All right. Uh, also, one more on Amazon, and this is not going to be any surprise, unfortunately. Uh, the Strategic Organizing Center released a report uh, earlier this week. They found that Amazon warehouse workers in the U.S. suffer serious injuries at twice the rate of rivals. This was from last year. Uh, the reported injuries went up last year 20%. The interesting thing about this, as Smith is that uh, Amazon spent $300 million on improving worker safety in 2021. So that's, they spent $300 million on improving safety and their injuries went up 20%. Again, something is very wrong here. That's for sure. You know, um, again, not surprised and people were working very hard during the pandemic. It, it begs the question is, what was happening before they spent that kind of money exactly exactly i don't even want to think about it yeah 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 all right last one and this is just uh, i always like to end on kind of a a fun one uh so there's um uh, uh it's a play a uh from it's a touring right now uh called waitress and uh it's it's a non-union production of waitress uh however uh, all the folks in the show want to organize and <laughs> they want to join Actors Equity, uh, which has collected signatures from more than 3% of the of the workers uh, there on the non-union musicals with the word I was fumbling there, musical of Waitress, um, which just, you know, like, why would you put a show on called Waitress about workers and have it be non-union? Am I missing something here, Ed Smith? Uh, you know, it could be just somebody who doesn't even didn't even think about it, 
And hopefully now that people are starting to organize, maybe a little grant them recognition without having to go through the election, the fight, the, you know, the consultants, as you said, but yeah, kind of, kind of ironic. I would that's say one, that's one word for it. That's a, that's a good lawyerly polite word. I had a different word, but I probably can't use it here. On the well, I'm air. still on the radio. So it's not just <laughs> a lawyerly comment. It's perhaps an appropriate radio comment. Uh, but anyway, all right, you are listening to your rights at work here on WPFW. Give us a call if you've got questions or comments and any of those reports. Our first guest today, Chris Biondi, he's the training director of the Washington, D.C. Joint Plumbing Apprenticeship Committee. Welcome to your rights at work, Chris. Thank you for having me. Oh, listen, it is our pleasure. I've been wanting to have you on forever. And I wanted to start out, I know you guys have got this uh, Industry Day and Open House uh, coming up next week. Before we get to this, I think we got to just start some basics. What is an apprentice? All right. Uh, an apprentice is a person that trains under a mentor. It's an apprentice, uh, in a sense, going back to the tradition that uh, dates back to Babylon, or uh, more recently, uh, you know, the uh, the Renaissance, where if you needed someone to make wagon wheels in your village, uh, you know, you had a guy that did that, and then uh, he'd get to a certain age, he'd say, look, I can't keep up with all these wagon wheels. So let me hire on a couple uh, young folks to to sort of help me out and then take on for uh, take over for me eventually. Now, in the modern sense, uh, you know, we, we've complicated a little bit since then, uh, but uh, we have a structured program where we bring in students or apprentices to train at our school. Uh, in, in this case, one day a week, and then we send them out to the field four days a week. So they work with instructors each week, and then they work with a journeyman or journey person or a mentor out in the field. Well, it's, it's funny, Chris, I was thinking, you know, I started as a, as a journalist and back when I was 14, I had the good luck to sort of wander into the local alternative paper up there in Rochester. And I realized yeah, I was 14. We had in my school, we had to do, you know, we had to do something in the community, but I realized I basically apprenticed, you know, I hung out with people that were experienced newspaper folks and they started out. I remember the first thing I did, Chris, was they had me, they were, they, they were big on surveys and they'd have me like, I could find, you know, call around to all the tire shops in town and, and get the price. It was a really, you know, it's not something you want to put an experience report around, but you got to put a 14 year old on it. Cause all you got to do is pick up the phone and make a bunch of phone calls but it was really good training. And it occurred to me, that's, that's kind of what apprenticeship is, right? It is. It's really uh, learning from the top people in your field uh, to, to help them and then eventually replace them over time. Very, very cool. Ed, Ed I want to get you in on this. Do, do they do this in the, in the lawyering circles or, or, or do they just go to law school and pay a, a lot of money? Um, well, Chris, thanks for being on the show. And uh, in terms of law school, well, there are actually a lot of programs in, in law school and they've been, uh, more and more and more. I mean, I have been out of law school for a few decades, maybe three. <laughs> um, but um, they will have uh, students either apprentice or uh, work with uh, the city governments or uh, state state governments. Different different types of um, um, uh, public sector work, or you could. Uh, and then, of course, when you're in law school, you can take a job as a as a uh, as a law clerk for companies or, or different law firms. So it's similar. But I also was thinking in terms of nursing, uh, 
Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Nurses really don't have necessarily um, many apprenticeship programs, but basically we do have mentorship programs and we do have, when a new nurse comes in, they're always going to be, they have to be oriented and then followed around by a preceptor. I don't know if you've heard that term, but is that something similar that what you guys do, except yours is a real program and, and your apprentices, they're getting paid, right? They are. And I, I think that's where the difference comes in. Um, you think about nursing school requires a certain amount of focused, intensive college training or, or postgraduate training, uh, graduate and postgraduate training. Whereas for us, the intent is to, to have people work and earn while they learn. So we say, look, we'll slow down the training. Uh, we'll spread it out over five years. But that way, as we go through that, you can have these elevated uh, classifications and the races that come with it. And you don't feel that your training time is creating a financial uh, burden because, again, we pay well. Uh, you, you could be a programmer. You could be making apps and then sign on with us. Or, or you could be a carpenter or, or some other trade. And we say, look, we're going to start you out at this level. But we, by the end of this six months or year, we expect you to be at the next level. And uh, we'll give you everything you need to, to get there. That's what I think is a really cool thing about this is that, you know, so many have seen, and, and this is a big issue nationally with these, these, these kids who come out of school and they're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, you know, and, and your program, your folks pretty, from pretty early on, I don't think it's day one, but I think pretty early on, they're on the job getting paid, right? They're, they're pretty much on the job right away. In fact, we've got, we have students that are starting in September and their classes don't start until then. So leading up to that, they'll be working 40 hours a week. So for late spring, uh, the rest of summer, and then they'll lose a day to school, uh, you know, as soon as the uh, first week of September hits. But when I came through, we had night classes. So uh, the trade-off of giving up, uh, you know, that one day is that they don't have to show up to school at, at four or five o'clock and stay till eight or nine. Uh, they get that day uh, back with their families or, or for whatever they want to do. And frankly, uh, it, it's nice to plumbing's not easy. It's a it's a hard job, and it's nice to have those evenings just to decompress for for the next day. Tell, tell us a little bit about how you got into this, Chris. Did you come from a family of plumbers, or were you the first one had that work had that work for you? I came from a union family, but it All was right. a, a white collar union family. Uh, my dad uh, was a uh, AFSCME guy, uh, helped negotiate contracts and stuff for his local, and my mom was a TAC. Uh, teacher, union person. And uh, I went to college for a while and I I kept changing my major to the point where I couldn't (laughs) finish a two or four year degree. I mean, education, math, literature, sociology, psychology, social psychology. And, uh, you know, I would, I would, I was, you know, my, my arrow didn't necessarily point and stick to where, uh, where it could have. Uh, So I learned a lot about a little about a lot of things. Uh, welcome, but, welcome to my world, brother. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Nope. But uh, I started carpentry one winter, and I found that I really took to it. Uh, I really enjoyed getting up and going to work, which was something new for me. I enjoyed uh, what I had completed at the end of the day. And the only thing that pulled me from that is one day, five months in, I asked my boss how much he made for a living. I was comfortable at that point asking. And when he told me, I put in my notice uh, that day. Oh, because wow. I had been doing it five months. He had been doing it for 25 years, and the numbers just weren't that far apart. Wow. So I mentioned that to a friend of mine from high school, and she said, you know, my husband's a plumber with a local five. 
So why don't you give them a call, see what they can do for you. If you like working with your hands, if you don't mind construction work, uh, and the rest is uh, history. That was 21 years ago. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm interested in your outreach to the high schools in the area and, and uh, what kind of programs you have to, because I would imagine high schools and some junior colleges or colleges where people might want to shift focus. What, what, how does that outreach work? All right. So under COVID, a lot of things didn't operate the way that they had previously. Uh, and I'm two years and three months into this job, which if you do your math, know uh, you know that that's two years and one month uh, from when COVID really started making a mark. Uh, so I've been sort of dealing with that and, and learning the ropes here. Um, and this is the first year where we can do intensive outreach to high school programs. And we start with CTE, which is uh, career and technology programs. Uh, and there's plenty of good ones in Maryland uh, and, and Virginia and DC for that matter. So we start with them because those are natural uh, sort of partners to us. But then we reach out to other schools and say, you know, you may not have a, a technical skills program or a vocational skills program, but uh you don't have to tell all of your students that college is the only thing that's that's an option. And so, uh, you know, we're working with them now. We're working with as many as we were before COVID hit. And the, the intent is to, you know, just about double that every year moving forward. Um, we had partnerships with some of the colleges, but I didn't like the way they read. I didn't like the way they were executed. So moving forward, I'm, I'm reaching out to the major community colleges in the area uh, which in, have varying uh, sort of trade skills classes, uh, depending on the school. But but again, they are a natural feeder to our program, whether it's, uh, you know, College of Southern Maryland or Prince George's Community College, Montgomery, Anne Arundel. Um, all of these, all of those schools, we, we would be able to take those students and say, here's what we can offer you. Uh, I know your debt with community college will be minimal. But instead of starting your life with twenty or thirty thousand dollars, get your two-year degree, come to us, let us teach you how to plumb, and be the best plumbers in the country. And after that, you're, you're, the sky's really the limit. You know, project management, leadership, all the things that you learned in either two or four years of college will serve you in this program. You're listening to your rights of work. Our guest is Chris Biondi. He's training director at the Washington D.C. Joint Plumbing Apprenticeship Committee. Chris, I noticed I was looking on the the website, and I noticed uh, you used the term journey person. Uh, now, date myself here, but I remember when everybody was a journey man, and frankly, they all were men. But uh, I think that's changed, right? Uh, it has. We we intake a lot of women into the program. We intake anybody who's interested in applying. Um, you know, part of what we do is connect with the people in our jurisdiction and work with the communities that are around us. And we want everyone to feel welcome, regardless of their background. Uh, so that's something that started before me. I'm, I'm running with that torch uh, because frankly, there you can't make enough male humans to fill the construction <laughs> industry in a way that we need. Things are not going to get built. So we need everybody. And the thing about our program is that it benefits everybody. Equality is basically written into the contract in a way that, you know, because of the collective bargaining. And so there's very few career opportunities that have anything like that, at least not hard written on paper. And so for us to say, you know, basically, 
I want anyone who's interested in this to get their shot. Now, before we talk about your open house, or maybe this will segue into it naturally, um, I've actually had to have a bunch of work done around the house, and I've been really Im- impressed with, you know, I sort of had this idea, especially about, you know, in the trades, you know, of it being, you know, a, a, a real hands-on, you know, kind of a job, but you, you really need to lo- know a lot of different stuff now these days, don't you? Yeah, so technology, obviously, is becoming a big part of what we do, Um you're going to be on the computer, whether you're looking up a cut sheet for, for something that you're installing, which is sort of, hey, this is the dimensions, here's how you install it, uh, to read plans on a, you know, it could be a, a giant size job or, or something the size of a, of a Wendy's. Um, I, I just found out, I've been out of the field for a little bit, but uh, material safety data handling sheets, which is, you know, anything that says, okay, this glue will make you pass out if you breathe it for this amount of time, (laughs) or this, uh, you know, pipe lubricant will eat your skin off if you don't wear gloves. All of these now are, you know, you just go to the sort of uh, cloud documents and you pull up and you can look at all of them quickly. There's no running to the job trailer. You walk over, you say, oh, I didn't realize I was using this chemical today. Pull out your phone. And in 30 seconds, you know uh, how quickly you'll pass out from the fumes. Can't beat that. Uh, yeah, that seems like it would be an important part of the job. <laughs> and Chris, the other thing is, you know, because of the way we run our school, we go into the physics, we go into the chemistry, we go into the history, everything about plumbing that will make somebody the most well-rounded plumber that you can possibly make. And there's a tendency uh, for certain groups to throw you out there and say, sink or swim and, and you know, best of luck to you. And if you don't make it, we're going to cut you loose and find somebody else. But we don't operate that way. You know, we want we want people to be critical thinkers. We want people to have all the information that they have, even stuff they may not use for a couple of years. Uh, we want that well-rounded, you know, super plumber level. Now, is this uh, open? I think you have, uh, it's what, once a year people can apply? How does, how does that work? If somebody's listening now and they're interested or they got a son or a daughter or a friend that's interested, how does that work? We take applications all year round, and okay. those are on local5training.org, uh, uh, and uh, there's an applications button for that, but we do the intake only in spring. Got so it. essentially, um, you know, we, we do uh, a, a three rounds of testing and interviews. They're starting late January, and we run them till just about the end of May. Uh, so that gives, you know, recent high school graduates a chance to, to take a shot, uh, and then everybody we've collected over the year. Uh, say look now we're now we're going to do the intake got it and i believe and i I know that one of the things is that the i think all the trades have uh drug testing which makes a whole lot of sense right i can't speak for all the trades but that's that's common yes um you know we're we're going to consider what's happening with the government on federal level and and the industry but the bottom line is you know it's safety first and, uh, you know, drug screening is a part of, of what we do. And and even if we weren't to do it, uh, there's a lot of government jobs and, and high profile companies like Facebook and Microsoft that require that to to start the job, whether we did it or not. So really, we're sort of covering everybody at once. Got it. Hey, hey Chris, uh, one more uh, quick question for me anyway is, you know, it's a tough job physically. Uh, my dad, my dad was a diesel mechanic and that was a tough job physically, but you know, plumbing, plumbing, pipe fitting, electrical work, they, they, they cause a lot of wear and tear on a body. And I know a lot of people, once they start hitting their forties, it's really rough, especially on the knees and back. 
Uh, what what's changed over maybe the past decade that kind of helped that to, you know, obviously knee pads or you see them all the time now, but are there any kind of things that have assisted people so that they can continue to work into their career into their fifties? There is that's been addressed on multiple fronts. You figure right now we've got almost 2000 members or or 2000 workers that we represent and no, not all of them can plumb until they're 68 or 72 or even 65. Uh, a certain percentage of them will go into office work. Now, the, the truth about that is what you're doing is you're trading wear and tear on your knees uh, and your and your back to your heart and your lungs and, and your, uh, you know, your pulmonary system is going to take the hit. That's the trade-off because of the stress. But uh, the bottom line is, you know, I, I teach OSHA 30 with this class, and a big part of what we do addresses ergonomics, how to do things that are safe, how to minimize wear and tear, how to use the right uh, protective equipment, whether it's knee pads, uh, back brace. Uh, and so, but I also, I explained to my students that you don't pick up a pipe of a certain piece, you know, of a certain weight or size. You you grab somebody and say, this is a two-person job. None of this uh, macho bravery, look at me, I can carry this pipe that would crush, you know, a small child. It's like, look, team it up. We have you work in Paris for a reason. We, we want longevity, not uh, short-term superhumans. And so uh, we're training people to work safely and to work longer. And if somebody does run into an issue, we have alternatives as far as uh, other things that they can do uh, to, just to cut down on or just to not keep doing that damage uh, from age, you know, 50 to 70. We've got to run, but uh, you've got this industry day and open house next Thursday, the 21st, it's going to be at 1030 to four at your facility out there uh, in Lanham. Is that open to everybody? What's what's the deal there? Yeah, yeah, it's open to the public. Uh, we want uh, industry folks to come and meet people they may not have. We want, we're a nonprofit. We're, you know, as an organization, we've been around for 132 years. We want people to come and see what we do differently, see the facility have some good food, meet the players, watch some demonstrations, see some classes in action. And uh, from 10.30 a.m. to 4 p.m., anybody who pops in will get that opportunity. And, and we welcome everybody. Oh, you, you, when you said food, you had had me, had my vote, man. <laughs> That's critical. All right, Chris. Great to have you on. Keep up the great work. Look forward to having you back on, brother. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good one. All right. That was Chris Biondi, training director at the Washington, D.C. Joint Plumbing Apprenticeship Committee. You can find out more at Local 5. That's the number 5plumbers.org. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the fascinating history of office design with Jennifer Kaufman-Bueller. She's author of Open Plan, A Design History of the American Office. All right, Mike, take it away. bed and I stumble to the kitchen for myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping out on the streets the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five
Parton with the 1981 hit 9 to 5. We're going to be showing 9 to 5 and also a great documentary 9 to 5 story of a movement at the D.C. Labor Film Fest next month. We'll hear more about that in a couple of weeks. But I wanted to play that today because our next guest begins her book with a reference to a key scene in 9 to 5, the movie. Jennifer Kaufman Bueller, she's assistant professor at the Roof School of Design, Art, and Performance at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, and the author of Open Plan, A Design History of the American Office. Jennifer, welcome to your rights at work. Hi, well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Oh, listen, I love, love, love your book. And, and I wanted to just start off with that key scene and just to remind folks, uh, Lily Tomlin, Do- Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, they've kidnapped their boss. And you should come, you know, come back and see the movie if you've seen it before when we show it. But in his absence from the office, you write, they transform the bureaucratic and deeply sexist corporate culture into a more supportive organization. Now, I remember that scene, but you look at it in a, in a bit of a different light. Tell us what you see through your eyes. Yeah, so this is such a great moment, right? So so the boss returns to the office and there is this sort of split screen moment where we see this new uh, transformed office that has become an open plan design. And the, the open plan, the image of this open plan, it's very colorful. It's a much more diverse open plan, in fact. So you notice that in, in earlier scenes, it's very white and male. And, and you see in the, actually in the foreground more uh, workers of color, even a worker with a disability sort of entering the office on a wheelchair. And it's shown as this much more inclusive environment. And it is meant to sort of encapsulate all of these changes that the, the women have been making in the boss's absence, right? The establishment of daycare uh, for work uh, at work, um, the establishment of flex time and work job share programs and various other things that are part of this kind of feminist reimagining of the office. So it it sort of uses this image of the open plan as a way of kind of signaling to us, the audience, as much as to the boss, all the changes that have been wrought in his absence. Um, and so I think it really demonstrates, I think, the kind of idealistic view of the open plan as this transformative thing that had this, these 
associations with all of these progressive programs that were so um, becoming common. Well, I shouldn't say common, becoming interesting <laughs> of interest in the 1970s. Um, and in some cases getting adopted, uh, I think, you know, in certain kinds of organizations. So one of the things I learned from your book was, uh, you know, this, this term open plan. Um, I, I thought, I thought I knew what it meant, um, but I'm not sure that it, it seems to mean a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, that's right. And this is one of the things that I think made this book sort of um, challenging to write, frankly, because what is an open plan? And as you as you started, as I started to kind of uncover or try to unravel what this this office design concept was, you sort of realize that it is constantly getting kind of repackaged um, and kind of reimagined in different ways. And, and, And often sort of each iteration is seen as an improvement on a previous version. So, you know, um, the, the kind of cubicle designs that we saw in the, in the eighties, was in many ways a response to some of the complaints of the kind of earlier iterations of the open plan that were seen as a little too open, that people didn't have enough privacy. So, so cubicle walls go up to give workers more privacy. Then in the, the aughts, you see this kind of really in the 90s and aughts, you see this kind of increasing rejection of the, the walls of the cubicle and a desire for more openness. And so you see this new open, open plan with, <laughs> with, with again, no more walls. And of course, we've seen this kind of reversion back. I mean, I, I what's amazing is in the time that people to start this research to when I finished it, we were in a full sort of uh, cubicle revival moment. I feel like actually cubicles maybe weren't so bad. <laughs> it's just, it was a kind of an extraordinary, like, you know, embodiment of exactly this issue that they were constantly just reinventing, reinventing it um, again and again and again. So, so the interesting thing, you know, it was funny when I was first looking at this and people were saying, oh, office, you know, what's, what's that got to do with workers? But it has, it has everything to do with workers. And in and, and your book, you keep you keep coming back to a lot of this stuff is, is sort of around, it's supposed to be for the workers, right? We're doing, and, and, and I mean, of course, I'm looking through my eyes and it's usually about productivity or control. Um, and I know Ed Smith wants to get in this because I know he works with nurses and, and they have their own issues with office design, which I'm sure he'll talk about. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because I don't think you wrote it as a labor book per se, but it, it really comes across to me. Uh, as you thought a lot about the workers' role in in office design, absolutely yes. I, I um, although um, although this is a design history, labor right. and labor history was very much um, in the foreground of my mind and my thinking and my training as well. And so I, I am thinking. I was thinking a lot about workers, and I think that's one of the the ways in which I was trying to intervene into the conversations we often have about the office that we don't center workers enough. And I think this manifests in in a number of different ways. Um, you know the open plan was so much about a kind of fantasy of work and a fantasy of the workplace. Um, And I think part of what I was trying to understand is the reality of these spaces and all of the harm that they created, the frustrations that workers experienced and all the ways those frustrations were dismissed again and again and again by management. So when workers said, we don't have enough privacy, they would say, you know, architects and designers and management would say, oh, you'll get used to it. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing was just, oh, it's noisy in here. Oh, that that's just, you'll get used to it. You just, you just haven't adapted to this new environment. And once you do everything, will be fine. Um, and, and so we do see this kind of constant kind of dismissal um, embedded in it. Another piece that I think was really interesting was all the ways that um, the open plan when it was first promoted in the 60s and 70s was um, supposed to be one in which workers would have a say in how their space was used. And of course, that never manifests in the way that it was imagined. And very often, you know, 
certain classes of workers got to participate in certain ways and make decisions that that um, often people in very high positions, executives, right. uh, professional workers, but lower level workers were typically left out if they had any opportunity at all to have say in their space. Mostly, they were treated as these interchangeable widgets in the works in the workplace that whose opinions really didn't matter. And so you get this really kind of um, I, I think um, these contradictions they're embedded in it. On the one hand, oh, it's this idealistic, you know, inclusive environment. Environment. And actually, it's reproducing many of the same structures of hierarchy um, and um, surveillance and control um, that were part of, of, a, of the older office forms that we'd seen for decades and decades before the open plan. We're talking office design, and we're going to get around to talking about whether the office is coming back. But we're talking with Jennifer Kaufman Bueller. Ed Smith, I remember some years ago, one of the issues that you guys were fighting about with nurses was the, you know, the problem uh, among many others, but of, of being attacked. And, and you guys, the union, was fighting for protections. Um, and so I, I kind of thought about that when I was reading this book and thinking about having a talk with Jennifer. But maybe you want to jump in here. Yeah, very interesting. Good, good memory on that, Chris. And that does spark a, 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 a discussion. First of all, I love Dabney Coleman. We love to hate him. <laughs> right. He's such a great actor. Um, secondly, I did want to go into the nursing, but before that, I remember, um, and, and, and uh, Jennifer, you probably don't know this person, but Adrian Fenty was the mayor of the District of Columbia for four years um, about a decade ago. And he changed the office of the ex- executive uh, uh, mayor's office to an open planning. Uh, and um, it w- did not go over well because, because of his personality. He was, he's, was someone who definitely wanted to know what you were up to every second of every day and pitted you against Chris if you were in the same area. So it was interesting because it became a, you know, it was like you said, a control surveillance thing. Um, Anyway, with nurses, the most important thing on a nursing station in a hospital is visual, is being able to look to your left, look to your right to make sure that you're able to keep an eye on as many patients as possible. Obviously, you can't see into the rooms, but you're, you're looking at the patient flow, and that's, that's important. And, and I, I think it was good that you noted that a lot of times employees aren't even, um, uh, their input's not even thought about. And in fact, I can think of a couple of hospitals <clears throat> where the designs were already drawn, everything was all done before they came to the union to talk about uh, issues on the on the change. And it was kind of the cat was already out of the bag. And even if I remember one, one particular uh, group of nursing stations just didn't give, give that visual and were too small to do the work. Um, so I think that's an important point. Chris's point is we had uh, some nurses who work in uh, uh, psychiatric settings and we, they often did not have enough security or security wouldn't come or security felt handcuffed by their own regulations about how do you touch a patient? How do you, um, you know, get the, get the situation calmed down. And ultimately we got management to uh, raise, raise the partitions, the glass partitions or the plastic partitions a little bit more. And I also think about that now in terms of the pandemic, we've seen much Everybody's got plastic. Is that going away? What are your thoughts on maybe does that uh, impede kind of the open office idea? Because I mean, certainly I know that when I'm talking across the plastic glass, you got to repeat first when you're in masks, you got to repeat yourself seven, eight times. Um, and then there is there is that there is a barrier. It's just no question. And, it, and it's a psychological barrier, too. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is such an interesting question, and and you're right. I mean, these are these are the tensions. Um, I think between this idea of effortless communication that's facilitated by openness and the reality that this is often in tension with people's need to sort of have some enclosure and some some space to think and to focus and and so these things can often be very um very much in tension and i think i think um you know the plastic um the plastic barriers are you know it's 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 uh hyg- it's a kind of um, theater of hygiene, right? It's not, it's not really, um, I think very effective in any meaningful way. And in fact, I think I was just hearing some recent uh, studies that are saying actually maybe it makes it worse because it, of all the aerosol it's, it's in some ways, it makes me think of the the debate that happened when smoking began to be banned in the workplace and all the conversations about the way smoke would move around the office. And, and early on they were like, Oh no, if, if if it's in my partition, it shouldn't matter. Right. Cause I'm, I have enclosure. (laughs) And you're like, no, actually, I actually found, you know, Dr. Documentation of the in the state of Wisconsin, where literally the some of the people were like, "Oh, but my cubicle is is my office, so shouldn't I be allowed to smoke in my office that isn't really an office?" <laughs> um, so it's just it's really interesting how we kind of see these these lessons never never fully get learned, do they? <laughs> Hey, you know, another movie that we're showing, it's a classic. We actually used to show it every year is Office Space, which has to be one of your favorites. But I was thinking specifically about the scene where Ron Livingston disassembles his cubes wall and it, and it just falls down and he's so pleased with himself. And I, I just I just I, I got to ask Jennifer, because you must you must have thoughts on this because it's, it's such a it's a key moment in the film. But it also just says so much about about his feelings about the cube farm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a movie where that set is doing a lot of work, right? And it's sort of representing from the very beginning, the kind of dreary kind of corporate culture and his dreary job. And he is so miserable. Um, and, and the cubicle is kind of the manifestation of his misery throughout the movie. Um, and so that moment when he is, of course, he's been hypnotized into sort of letting go of all of his um, hang-ups about his job and has just decided not to care. Um, and, and so this is a moment, part of his liberation, right? Right, of him tearing down, tearing down the cubicle. Actually, my favorite office movie, though, is a slightly earlier movie um, about women were office workers um, called Clock Watchers, oh, um, yes. which is a fabulous movie and is not. It, it needs to. We need more screenings of Clock Watchers. I'm just going to throw it out there. Future future movie movie festivals Clock Watchers. In fact, it would pair very well with Nine to Five. I've long we- thought. <laughs> We've actually shown it in the DC Labor Film Fest. I love that film. It's a very dark film, I have to say. Great performances. But the other thing I was thinking, though, and it really goes to your book, is another uh, a couple of key scenes in, in Office Space are when, and I'm forgetting the character's name, but, you know, his um, Livingston's boss, who's always dropping by right at the right moment uh, about those TPS reports. But it, But one of the things about it is that, it kind of plays with your whole idea of the, of the open plan because this 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 guy can just sort of lean on the top of that partition there doesn't have to open the door doesn't have to knock right and and it, can you talk a little bit about that because i thought of your book with that scene yeah yeah absolutely so i mean one of the one of the issues about the open plan is the how little control we have over space and over who comes to door space and how people come in um and and i think you know, one thing i'm really interested too is the way that those power dynamics play out and who gets interrupted and how they get interrupted right workers um in the higher level positions are often afforded a lot more um 
a choice about how they get interrupted and uh, respect, frankly, about those interruptions. Whereas people in lower levels, the lower you are, frankly, the less people care about your time and about your, the, the, you know, your use of that space. And so I think, I think there is this, this really interesting power dynamic that is constantly played out in these small conversations or the small ways in which these, the people interact with the space and with each other. Um, uh, so I think that's such a great, a great example of that utter disregard of, of that, of that sense of, of individual space that is supposed to be created by the cubicle. Um, and of course, never really lived up to that expectation. Well, and part of what you talk about is how you can pretty much, and probably an expert like you can tell, just if you, you could just look at like my office or Ed's office and kind of tell where we are in the organization by where we are, you know, located uh, in terms of our relationship to power, yes. by the type of office we have, but even things like the the colors and the run, I mean, just things that frankly, I had never really thought about. What are the, what are the kind of clues that, that you look for? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really interesting piece. Um, and it goes far back. I mean, we have been um, designing offices around hierarchy for well over 100 years, but mm. it became much more developed in the post-war era where there becomes this, this idea of the space standards, where every kind of um, level of hierarchy has these uh, explicit um, uh, guidelines for what their office should look like or workspace should look like, what kind of desk they should have, uh, what what kind of, as you said, what kind of carpet, um, if they're in a private office, what art is, what kind of art they're allowed, what kind of ashtray they can have on their desk, you know, the office accessories, everything. Um, and, and as a result, you get this real kind of structuring and ordering of organizational hierarchy in space in a way that reinforces and reproduces um, these, these power systems and power structures. And of course, one of the pieces of this that I'm really interested in is the way that, that those hierarchies are also, of course, inscribed with, um, you know, uh, sexism, with racism, with ableism, and all in classism. And all of that is, is tied to these kind of visual, visual cues about, um, about place, about people, about hierarchy. Um, and absolutely, when you start looking for the clues, you start to realize, you know, designers are actually pretty sophisticated at how they do this. And, and sometimes it's color. Sometimes it has to do with kind of a system of um, sort of trim and versus work surfaces. So you might see the lowest level people have all laminate desks. And then uh, as you go up the chain, someone might have a laminate top, but a, a little wood grain detail on the edge. And then uh -huh. later it'll be the whole wood grain desk, right? Like, <laughs> and things like that. And it's, it is, it is absolutely designed to be that way. Um, it is, I, I used to think it was sort of a secret, a secret um, subconscious element of hierarchy, but no, it's totally explicit and intentional. <laughs> so, uh, I remember uh, in the federal sector, I used to work in the federal sector and in, in the federal sector, public unions don't really have much to bargain about. So one of the hugest things was the size of offices and no question about it. It was higher, hierarchical, based on hierarchy, <laughs> excuse me. Um, you know, it'd be 120 square feet for this GS level, 150 for this GS level. And you would negotiate and you would spend weeks of negotiating on each of these offices. And I see you nodding your head. It sounds like you're familiar with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are uh, very, very, you know, uh, common areas of dispute. And in fact, I have this one example that was from the, the state of Wisconsin, where people, a group of managers were really annoyed that one of their number, they were all at the same level in the state of Wisconsin. One of them had a slightly larger office and all the other people got so upset um, that they ended up having to do like a fairly significant 
um, restructuring to the building. They had to move a radiator to put yeah. the, the wall in the right spot because uh, nothing, no work was getting done. They were just mad. <laughs> like- I love that story. It's a great story. <laughs> we're going to have to wrap, but I did want to ask you, I mean, seriously, I mean, I mean, every day I open the paper, there's another story about another company that's been like, well, it's interesting. It's one of two stories. It's either another company that's saying, y'all work from wherever you want. We don't care. It's all good. Or they're saying, you know, come back or quit or be fired. What What are your thoughts about the future of the office? Yeah, I've been watching this with great uh, curiosity as well. Um, and I, I admit, I've always, I've been skeptical since the start of the pandemic that the office was dead because um, even as many of these companies were saying, oh yeah, you're going to be able to work from home from now for, for, for some time. We don't know. And I was like, oh yeah, you just wait. They're going to be wanting everybody back. Um, and and I think we are seeing that 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 turn back to the office. And I think, I think it comes back to issues of control. I think it comes back to this fantasy that the office is somehow a magical creator of community and socialization and um, creativity that is at the the very heart of why the open plan keeps getting recycled. Um, and of course, it is very exclusionary. And I still think about all of the people whose needs, whose health uh, issues, whose bodies, whose well-being, whose um, um, personal lives are constantly being treated as unimportant relative to the priorities of the organization. Um, and so I think, I think we are seeing this really interesting moment there where workers are, I think, expressing their, their opinions with their choices. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think this, this kind of effort of some workers to sort of say, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to, I'm going to go find a place where I can do work the way that I want to work is, is maybe going to, going to be the longer, I hope going to be the longer term story of, of how workers are able to sort of make, turn this to their own benefit and not just have it reproduce the same, the same problems that we saw, you know, in the pre-pandemic times. Well, Jennifer Kaufman Buell, it has been a fascinating discussion, much more than we didn't even get to. We'll have to have you back. Thanks so much for a great book and thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. This was a delight. All right. Jennifer Kaufman Buell, she's assistant and assistant professor at the Roof School of Design, Art and Performance at Purdue University, the author of Open Plan, a Design History of the American Office, a great book. Get it. Lots of great photos. Ed Smith, great to see you again, brother, and uh, keep us posted on what's happening with DCNA. That will just about do it for our show today. If you missed any of it or you want to share with others, just look for Your Rights at Work on your favorite podcast platform. Our show is uh, today was engineered by the mighty Michael Nacella. Stay Ooh. tuned, folks. We'll see you all next week. Be safe, everyone. Take care, Chris. Mike. This is a public service. Get time!